Hi, and welcome to the Boat Princess podcast. My name is Nikki Vo, and I'm your host. I am a boat owner, a marina owner, a director on the Marina Industries Association, and a huge advocate for boating. In this series, I'm sharing the stories from every nook of the boating industry with the intention of encouraging more women to join me and for more women to get behind the helm too. I want to share the experience and opportunities of boating, of the boating industry, and I want you to join me as I bring the conversations and answer all the questions you've had. Boating is not just for the glamorous and rich and famous. It's full of beautiful and interesting people making the most of our natural environment and getting out there, enjoying the waterways. So let's set off the lines, take over the helm and escape to the world of boating. So I'm very excited today because I have a very special woman to interview here. She's just got back from the Olympics and um, she's sitting in a hotel quarantine room. So we thought we'd all cheer each other up a bit by having a conversation. So Nick Douglas, welcome to the Boat Princess. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and bring a little bit of happiness during during lockdown. I know that uh, I'm in hotel quarantine, but I think that everyone around the world at some point in the past 18 months has gone through a trying time, at least one, (laughs) Uh, be that to do with a loved one, first and foremost, Um, be that to do with a career uh, disappointment or maybe even having to change their career, be that having to change a passion um, uh, or even be away from people that they love very much. So I guess being in two weeks of hotel quarantine is all relative uh, really compared to what is actually going on uh, in, in the wide, in the big wide world, so to speak. That's so true and a, a very good way of, of putting it. I must admit I sent um, Ian Murray a little message on the back of Instagram the other day to say thank you for the sailing teams giving us a bit of an uplift during lockdown in Sydney because um, the old theory of blue mind and seeing water and so on, um, it was really exciting just to see the sailing um, but mm. also to to have such success in it as well was was just amazing so you've just come back from that yeah um covering that can you give us a little insight as to what you got up to absolutely it was a pretty amazing regatta uh I might start with the uh the harder bits first and finish on the good note just because I think it was very different to what a lot of people thought and as I mentioned I know a lot of people have been through trying and and trying times and struggles lately. So uh, I I need to say up front, I don't think it's about comparing how tough things are. It's just been a tough old 18 months for everyone. So uh, in terms of going over there, for the athletes especially, I think it was a really tough situation. No loved ones for them to lean on when they had a country leaning on them. As you've just mentioned, uh, there were a lot of people's hopes and joys riding on the back of of a whole bunch of people's successes. So for them to stand up and still perform when they didn't have anybody who they loved around them, I think was a real tribute to not only the actual performers, I'm going to say, uh, performers and athletes out on the water, uh, but their support staff like Ian Murray. So I'm so glad you mentioned him because I think the support staff, uh, the support staff are the unsung heroes 
so to speak, because it was also tough for them to be there holding those people up when they didn't have their loved ones around them as well. Um, For everybody that went to Tokyo, we had to go through 14 days of mandatory quarantine over there as well. So three of those days were in complete isolation. And then I was able to go to my work, which was essential work at the venue, but we were all in bubbles. So when I was at uh, when when I got to work, you had to go through security like airport, like the airport, and then I would have to go um, to my office and stay in my office. Sometimes on my walk to the office, I would walk past people that I knew, and I would be allowed to be like, "Hi, hi, hi," from a distance. <laughs> so uh, that was incredibly tough. Um, but then I would go up into what was called my my crow's nest, so to speak, or what I called my crow's nest, which was up in this box that had been built for the broadcasters up in the in the top or the SPP team. I was working with the sports presentation uh, team, so. I was up in my box and um, a lot of the uh, photographers and whatnot that I'd worked with previously from World Sailing started calling me Rapunzel, which was pretty funny because like, <laughs> how have I not seen you yet? Let down your hair from up in that tower and let me come and see you. So, um, yeah, so it was it was a, a weird situation because I'm very much used to being at events where we get to go and say hello and, and I think my role uh, in the past especially in sailing has been to be that person that goes and says hello to everybody that uh that we care about if we can't be there so that was that was really tough but something very special was that I my job was to do all of the announcements at the venue so I would start from 10 o'clock in the morning I'd be doing announcements over all the loudspeakers at the venue and out to the the big screen. There was a 50 metre long big screen, um, which was massive. And even though there couldn't be spectators at the venue, there were support staff and there were sailors and there were VIPs from the uh, from the IOCs and the other member national authorities, um, the Olympic family, they call them, that were coming down every day. And it very quickly became one of the go-to locations for the IOC to come to. There was a waiting list for people to come to the VIP tent. So that made my job in- incredibly exciting. I, we had Thomas Bach one day, who's the president of the International Olympic Committee, I think at least one day come down to watch the sailing uh, so I think the Finn medal race, especially he was there for that. So, uh, we had quite a few big names there. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was my job. And on the Enoshima racetrack, the sailors could say, like kept saying that they could hear me from the racetrack when I was commentating as well. So I was commentating alongside, uh, the Japanese announcer. So I was the English announcer and commentator. Then there yep. was a Japanese announcer and commentator, a Japanese, uh, his name was Tomo, absolute legend, uh, could pretty much do my job by the time we left. Gosh, he learned English quickly. It was really annoying. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then there was also a commentator in Japanese, Maiko Sato, who is a two-time Olympian for Japan yeah. uh, in 2000 and 2004, and Nina Curtis, who I've sailed with quite a bit, uh, silver medalist at the London 2012 Olympics. Uh, so she was the other English commentator. So during the racing, there were two Australian girls commentating on the racing, which was pretty awesome. 
Uh, and That's I know, great. yeah, and I know that a lot of the Australians said that it made them feel like they were, you know, a little bit of home, even though they didn't have people around them. And I hope not too many people listen to this and get any ideas about not employing me. But <laughs> but but apparently it was nice to have a little bit of home in the uh, in the boat park, so to speak, having an Australian voice. So that um that hopefully gave a little bit of respite to the athletes and the support crews from Australia, but. It was an absolute privilege to be there and witness some of the best sailing that I've seen in such a long time. You mentioned that I come from an Olympic background and I do love my one design sailing so much. And, um, but some of the highlights as well, um, seeing Mozambique have a great race, uh, in the 470 women, seeing the American Samoan team in the NACRA, um, have, have an absolutely brilliant race. They led around the top mark in one of the races and commentating that was so special. So seeing other nations have, uh, a bit of a, a step up and a, an ability to be there against the greats was also a beautiful moment, I think. Um, and something very special. So of course I very much enjoyed seeing the wins as well, not only for the Australians, but for others that I know have worked so, so very hard. Um, my adventures of a sailor girl channel was still able to cover the, the sailing that was happening, which was pretty awesome. And, um, it was, was, I thought it was wonderful to see Australians who'd effectively already won, Mm. but they still didn't slacken off. Did they, they, they went for first or second position anyway coming through and at that I think that's Australian spirit shown right there oh absolutely I was talking to somebody about that just moments ago about in the medal race with the 470s Matt and Will ducked the whole fleet essentially off the start line started on port did everything they could to stay out of everybody else's way and were still second around the top mark and then yeah. just sort of went, oh, well, yeah. we may as well get out in front and then we won't be any trouble at all. So yeah, because they could they have went. taken the safe option and been very cautious and, you know, okay, we, we don't want to, you know, lose this, so we'll be cautious and just do everything perfectly so that we get through okay. But they yeah. didn't do that. They just went for it again, <laughs> didn't they? I love them. In avoiding, in trying to avoid trouble at the start, they ended up leading the race, which is just um, absolutely talented humans. Uh, and yeah, and, and again, as you mentioned, Ian Murray, the performance director. I mean, what, what, what a person to have as your performance director. I know. Uh, I know. Australia had two golds out of uh, eight potential medals. We didn't have anybody in RSX or in RSX women. Yeah. Another hard bit for me being at the Olympics was to not have my journalist hat on. I, um, yes. I kind of struggled with that as you can hear it pouring out of my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. You're really, <laughs> it's, it's, I can tell you haven't been talking to someone for a while. I know. But, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's lovely to see your, um, your energy and your enthusiasm still there from how long have you been back now? Uh, this is day 10 in quarantine. So wow. see, that's amazing. You're still so excited about it. And yeah, that's uh, brilliant. Well, I just, I, I do just love the Olympics. I mean, I, I wrote a blog on it on the day of the closing ceremony and I, I did have to be very careful about what I did and didn't say whilst I was working at the Olympics. And I still want to make sure that I respect uh, the, the Tokyo Olympic Games organizing committee who did a fantastic job of yep. making this Olympics happen in really crappy circumstances oh, to put it mildly. No. Um, so my hats are off to them and the, and the Japanese people, they, are. Uh, uh, I can't even, I just love the Japanese as 
They're a beautiful culture, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I it was so funny because it's not the first time it's been said to me, but it had been said to me quite a few times. It's the fifth or sixth time I've lost count uh, that I've been to Japan. I've been lucky enough to be there quite a number of times for my own sailing and also for uh, covering other events. And uh, I've had it said to me before, I think you were Japanese in a past life. <laughs> and, um, and it was said to me again this time around, and I've made some uh, lifelong friends that I worked with there as well. I know that they'll be friends for for, for life. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty beautiful environment. But to for them to still go ahead when, you know, it's cost their country so much in terms yeah. of emotional cost um, yeah. and monetary cost and um, and time. So I um, my hats are off to them for actually yeah, making it happen. Yeah, there's a lot of respect worldwide for that, I think. Yeah, and yeah. It, I think the world needed it. I know a lot of people... Willing. Yeah, I think a lot of people are for and against, and and I I do not disrespect views either way. I think there's arguments both ways for whether it should or shouldn't have happened, but I think I think the world needed a little bit of hope. And I wrote that I wrote a blog on the night of the closing ceremony, and I just said, you know, I think when I was ten was the first time I announced I was going to the Olympics. At, at that point in time, it was as a swimmer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure a few months later I also announced that I was going to star on Broadway. So, you know. Um, That's a 10-year-old right there. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. But, you know, we weren't scared to have these dreams, whereas I think uh, the past 18 months have really squashed a lot of people and we we haven't Which been. Why it was so important for it to happen, wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I, I think we haven't been brave enough to go, well, what if this and what if that and maybe I want to go to Bermuda for a holiday or, you know, and it doesn't matter what your dream is. I just think that a reason why we did need the Olympics was for people to see that dreams can still be realised and to understand that mm. But there is a potential way out of this and I think the Olympics has always been something that provides hope and inspiration and the Tokyo 2020 Olympics was nothing short of that. Absolutely. So you mentioned there uh, the age of 10. Let's, <laughs> let's go backwards in your life because mm-hmm. um, um, you are a very high-achieving young lady and yeah. to explore how you um, got to that level in sailing. Um, so um, tell me about your childhood and, and where your sailing world started. Sure. So um I guess I, I I didn't have a choice in sailing. <laughs> I did have a choice whether I loved it or not, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually remember when I made that decision of like, actually, I think I like this <laughs> as opposed to I'm forcibly being put in the boat. Do you remember um, that moment precisely? Yes, I remember that moment. Um, yeah, share that moment with us. Oh, okay, sure. Um, I was actually a bit older than you might think. <laughs> um, I was 15. Yeah. And we were at, uh, we were training for a gather. My dad and I did a lot of sailing with my dad. And I just said to him, I just don't want to run. Like, why are you making me run? I hated training. I hated it. I didn't, I didn't see the point of it. It was a waste of my time. I'm like, why, why are you making me run? Yeah. <laughs> I don't run. And 
to this day, anybody now will say, you can't make her run. Like I run when I'm running late. That is it. Do not try and make me run. I can do any other exercise you ask of me. I'll run on a netball court. I'll run playing cricket, beach cricket, whatever. I do not just go for a run. It is the worst thing in the world. (laughs) Welcome to my world. I am exactly the same. Oh, really? Perfect. Yeah. So I'm like, what is this? Anyway, at this moment, and dad said to me, he's like, you have so much potential. Can't you see that if you just put a bit of effort in, you could actually be really good at sailing? And I was like, huh, yeah, it could be. Not running though, but yes. (laughs) I do like sailing. I could be really good at it. Thank you so much, but still not running. <laughs> so who was the one that got you into it? Did, what, Dad, what yeah. tender age did you did he do that? <laughs> so uh, my mum's favourite story, uh, my parents were quite young when I was born. They were 25. My dad was quite a keen laser sailor. Uh, in fact, he sailed from Middle Harbour Amateur Sailing Club, like the best of them back in the 80s. I'm aging myself, but that's fine. Mid-80s to be exact. <laughs> and um, and he's begging my mum. He's like, come on. I was 10 months old. I've got to go back to sailing. This is ridiculous. I was born in February, so let's count that up. February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October. I've got to go sailing. I've got to go sailing. That makes that that sounds about right, actually. And just to explain sailing. to our listeners, a laser is a single-handed, um, exactly. smaller dinghy. Yeah, yeah, a single-handed dinghy, quite serious, Olympic class. Uh, and my great dad, boat. yeah, great boat. I, I we yeah. still have two actually. Um, but my um, my dad also was a training partner of a guy called Glenn Burke, who represented Australia at the Olympics in '92. So um, he's now the CEO of Hamilton Island. Shout out to Uncle Berkey up at Hammer. Hamilton. I'm really sorry. Yep, yep. we'll Hamilton. be there soon. We promise. Yeah, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Hamilton Island race week isn't happening. Oh, it's really sad. Um, so yeah, dad was training partners with with Glenn Burke and he really wanted to get back and he wanted to go sailing. And, and uh, those of you who know my dad will know that he can't sit still. So I can't, so mum said, no worries, no worries, darling. Off you go. You go back to sailing. Really? Are you kidding? <laughs> I was like, no, go on, go back to sailing. You're driving me nuts. Go sailing. <laughs> and dad's gone, oh, thank you. You're the best. And she's like, no worries, but you got to take the kid. I love it what it's my day off too if you want to go sailing no problems but you take Nicole (laughs) so fine I'll take her so off we went and um he's uh, reportedly pushing me around the boat park does anyone want to look after my baby does anyone want to look after my baby does anyone want to look after my baby (laughs) anyway so yeah, he uh, he he went sailing without a life jacket. Put his life jacket on me. Gaffer taped me and the life jacket to the mast. Oh to the master, and um, off we went. So <laughs> gaffer taped you to the mast. That is quite a story. So yeah, so there's quite a few sailors uh, from those days that remember me being that kid that was tied round the mast. So <laughs> um, 
Yep. Shout oh. out to Nev Witty, Andrew York, Freddie Phillips. <laughs> do not try this at home, folks. We do not um, yeah. take our children to the mast of a sailing boat. And we no. certainly don't put them in their dad's life jacket. No. <laughs> so naughty. I know. I'm like, there's so much wrong with this story. It's not <laughs> even funny. <laughs> it's a very 80s story, actually. So 80s. All those things and- we used to do in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And anyway, nothing was wrong. It was fine. So so we went home and um, reportedly Dad proudly said to Mum, because she's going, oh, did you go sailing? And he's like, yeah, I did. And I took her with me. And Mum's like, brilliant. You can take her next week. <laughs> and there it started. And there it started. So at an incredibly young age. So <laughs> when did you actually start sailing or crewing yourself? Um, so I progressed from being taped to the mast (laughs) (laughs) to sitting back in the cockpit. I'm not sure when, actually, I don't think he pulled that stunt very many times. That was more just a matter of, a matter of proving something. I used to go on the start boat a lot. Um, I had a, uh, I had a bit of cork with fishing line around it. Like, you know, like a, like a Barocca tube sort of size of cork with fishing line around it. And oh, I remember, that's, yeah, really old fishing. Yeah, yeah, and I would, and I had a hook. I had no bait, um, yeah. but I'd sit out there all day on the on the committee, all day in my mind as a young yeah. kid. Probably not that long. <laughs> probably like four hours. Yes. Um, and I would sit there and throw my line over, try and fish. I used to go to the sleep. We used to go to sleep in the anchor well. And I remember asking Dad when I was older. I was like, "What boat was that?" And he's like, "Oh, just a Quintrex tinny." And so I was little enough to go to sleep in the anchor well thing at the front on this Quintrex tinny. Um, So, yeah, so spent most of my time following him around. Story of my life. Um, (laughs) My mum would argue she's done it more. Um, (laughs) And, um, yeah, so when I was about two and a half, I progressed to the cockpit Mm -hmm. and um, dad made his vang pink, uh, which was the best thing ever. and it had the really old blocks on the vang. So that used to be my rope. I was the vang trimmer then. Me trimming the vang, <laughs> in inverted commas, was not really a valid position on the boat. It was literally just pink so that I had something to hang on to when I was sitting in the cockpit. And when we tacked, I'd go around the mast and then back into, well, to start with, I'd go under the vang because I could actually fit under the vang across the centreboard. Yep. But when I was about... Oh, I think I was just before I was three because mum was pregnant with my sister. Um, Dad took me on the marathon race from Middle Harbour Amateur Sailing Club to the Harbour Bridge and back. Yep. And that was the last time that I could actually get under the vang because um, I got stuck on attack. It was a big suddenly and I got stuck on attack just off Bradley's head and we capsized and that was my first capsize. For real capsize during a race yeah. capsize, not my first capsize. But your dad remembers that to tell you that? Yo, yeah, well, I remember seeing Bradley's. I remember the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and everything once we got up again. And then yeah. after that, he got me to steer. And then that's when I started attacking around the mast. I remember yeah. capsizing because I remember him being like, Nick, where are you? Nick, where are you? Nick, where are you? I'm like, I'm here. That's <laughs> all good. I can swim. So, um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, then that was when I would go around the front. He'd, like, ready to tack and we'd go around the front. And then on the way back, we were downwind all the way, and I remember Dad being like, point at that, point at that, point at that. And so I'd steer I'd steer downwind um, on the laser going downwind. I'm sure he was helping me, but 
in my mind, I was doing it. So yeah. <laughs> no, I remember my dad doing that. Point at that bit. Now yeah, yeah that. exactly. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. The, yeah, it's a great way of teaching kids. It's the quintessential so, learning tool. <laughs> point at that. Yeah, point, point at that hill over there. Okay. All right. I can do that because it's a point of reference and you just keep heading towards it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I asked questions when I was younger because when I started remembering stuff, I think I was like, is this how it happened? Is this what happened? Is this what happened? He argues I was a bit older than 10 months now and mum's like, no, you were 10 months. <laughs> oh, that is so. an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so has anybody seen Finding Nemo? Because, you know, that site when Nemo comes up and sees the opera house with the bridge, like <laughs> I remember that exact moment and it's so cute now because if I'm ever super stressed and I'm at my mum and dad's, dad will just put Finding Nemo on at that bit of the movie because it's just got this serious <laughs> calming effect on me. Um <laughs> I'm loving um, your mum and dad and I haven't even met them. It's yeah. <laughs> they're, they're my best mates. I love them dearly. Um, I'm very lucky um, as a 36-year-old woman saying that. Um, but, yeah, so they, um, yeah, I just, that view, it's stuck in my mind forever. And yeah. I, I've, I've always said, like, even as a, you know, 10-year-old, when I die, scatter my ashes off Bradley's head where I had my first cat's eyes. <laughs> You know, I'm a bit, I'm a bit weird like that. Oh, no, that's not weird. That's cool. Yeah. And so I, I very much remember that moment. We moved away from Sydney when I was uh, seven and a half or so. Yeah. We moved down to the south coast of New South Wales. Where about? Um, do you know where Milton Aladulla is? Oh, absolutely. I have a house at Mollymook. Aha. So Milton, Milton is home for me. So um, I grew up then sailing offshore from Aladella Harbour. So I have reached many a time in Nor'easters into Bannister's Head there. So um, that that was my my next series of adventures is sailing down there. So, so you yeah. sailed out of Aladella or? Yeah, just out yeah. of the harbour there. So I did most of my sailing growing up out of there or on Lake Conjola or Beryl, or I'm a member still of Jervis Bay Sailing Clubs out on Saturdays and Batemans Bay Sailing Clubs out on Sundays. So, um, yeah, grew up that sailing there. That is a there. beautiful part of the world down there that a lot of Sydney siders don't actually know about. And yeah, we it's, kind of keep it secret to ourselves, don't it? Because I know, I know, I know. Nobody, it's nobody, so I uh, don't know where I'm from oh. at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, very, it's a very beautiful funny. part of the world. Yeah, so, indeed. So you um, you sailed from that. What were you sailing on at that time? What sort of boats? So when I was seven and a bit, when we moved down there, Dad bought me a Manly Junior. Um, yep. They're and, like a, what we used to call it. What we used to call them a mirror in the UK. With oh the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we still have our mirror, which is like a. a it's like twice the size of a Manly Junior. Pretty oh, much. there you go. I didn't realise that. that. Can you they, explain to me why Amira and and the Manly Junior have that? They don't have a back. The scowl. No. They have a, a blunt yeah. sort of thing. Well, I don't actually know why. I think it's just the traditional design of boats was to have that scow nose because boats used to be built out of timber. And yep. it was a lot easier to build the scow nose and then to have the panels underneath as yep. opposed to trying to make the, the wood actually go to a point, which is I think is the reason is that it was just difficult to build it that way. Because if you look at yacht design, it changed a lot once fiberglass started coming into play and they were actually able to glass wood even into that pointed bow shape. But if you think about 
um, the, the design of boats, the pointier bows start, started to come when steel and fiberglass really started to come into come into effect. So I'm the Juniors and Mirrors were very cost effective boats. They were they're very <laughs> price wise, they're really cost effective. So I guess that's another part of it. They were cheaper to make that way. <laughs> yeah. So my dad sailed Manly Juniors. Uh, I think he was national champion in 1976 in a boat that he built with his dad. So wow. his dad sailed as well. Um and so the Manly Junior that my dad bought me was super cost effective because it was older than his last Manly Junior. Gosh, <laughs> she's nice to me. Um, <laughs> had a wooden mast, a wooden rudder, a wooden centerboard, and all the kids that I was racing against had fiberglass boats with fiberglass boards. And dad's like, you're going to learn to sail. You're going to learn to sail on a crap boat because then a good boat will be even better. <laughs> Just like, look, your dad was consistently building resilience in you, I can tell. Ah! <laughs> Imagine what would have happened if I had a good boat. <laughs> he's actually a great father. He's built, nah. some, built a very strong woman. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's amazing. And um, so I I sailed the Manly Junior. I had a bit of an accident when I was 12, 13, so I missed a bit of sailing. But dad came back from the Taser, wor- oh, Taser Laser Worlds in... 96 um and and he had a second over there um and then decided that was the last world you could do in 96 with a weight belt yeah and uh he's not very big so uh he used to wear a kilo on his front and he's like I can't do this <laughs> I can't do this without weight so uh, for those listening that might not understand what I'm talking about there used to be something that you could wear when you were sailing dinghies at a serious level and you, it was basically a life jacket that they will put water in um, to put extra weight on their body to add to the ballast so that they could have a greater effect at flattening out the boat and that became illegal in 96. Okay, so then, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, so the 97 to 2000 rules came out for yeah. the leading into the two thousand games and weight belts became illegal so that's when he went I'm not sailing the laser anymore and came back and got a taser which is a two-person boat I was 11 um so we went and did our first worlds together that Christmas in Melbourne the worlds happened to be in Melbourne um there were 109 boats uh, 108 boats because 109 was a DNF um and it was my first major regatta and yep. dad was fresh back from the laser world. So was, you know, ready to rock. And here's the 11 year old 30 kilo girl going, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. I remember crying to mum and being like, do I have to do this? Cause it blew 25 knots every day. Oh my goodness. Degrees, 220 degrees. It was written on the deck, 220 degrees. 20 knots every day and we were so light. Was it choppy too? Yeah, it was wavy. I remember going downwind and just having my eyes shut and Dad would put his leg over the top of me in the hiking straps just to lock me in because I was quite little. I couldn't get my bottom to the edge of the boat to actually hike. Like I was that little. Um, And so he'd just put his leg over me and be like, hold on. And I'm like, ah, because we'd make up heaps of boats downwind because we were right on minimum weight of 130. Yeah. My job as an 11-year-old was to pull the jib on 
and rotate the mast. Right. Neither of which I could do. So dad was rotating the mast and trimming the jib and trimming the main and hiking the boat flap because I was pretty much useless. So <laughs> and crying to my mum, do I really have to do this? And her probably thinking, well, I'm not doing it. Would your dad do anything to hurt you? <laughs> no, he wouldn't. <laughs> and I'd go again. Anyway, oh, my God. Yes, I have similar memories. Yeah. Yeah. So my my so that so code flag one was an upwind finish. Code flag two was the best flag in the world because dad would be so happy because we'd pass people going downwind to the finish. Yes. (laughs) And that's blue with a white dot. And so that's when I learned my code flags. Oh wow. (laughs) My numeral penance. Please be two. Please be two. Please be two. (laughs) Sitting there freezing, going, please be two. Please be two. So, yeah. Oh goodness! Yes, I remember career. as as a, a crew on a dinghy, you get very mm. wet, you get very cold, um, mm-hmm. you get very salty eyes. Oh my goodness, your your eyes are stinging like you wouldn't believe, yeah. aren't they? From the yeah the water splashing into them all the time, and Dad's oh. just going, "Well, I'm fine." Yeah, that's because you're behind me. <laughs> I remember when I got older and I sort of knew what was going on around 15 when I sort of twigged. Um, like I remember him being like, come on, let's like, you know, let's do this. I'm like, yeah, come on. Blah, blah, blah. And like literally because you're the crew, he's using you as a roadblock as well. So like a wave comes and he's like hiding behind me. And I'm like, you bastard. It's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. Anyway, it, um, oh, it took a little. special memories. Such special <laughs> memories. But anyway, we ended up doing every nationals in that boat for 25 years following on from that regatta. So we've done a lot of sailing together. Um, We won our first Worlds together in 2005. So, uh, yeah, eight or nine years later. And you're current world champion for Taser, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so we won our first in 2005. There were 131 boats, one start line. That was pretty full on. Um, The next year we came second. And then the next year we won again, or the next time it's biannual in the Taser. The next time we came, we won again, which was in Japan. That was in 2009. Gosh. And then, um, and we had a series of podium finishes in between then and, and 2019 and, and won the Worlds in Hailing Island. So, um, yeah, that was that was amazing. Ten years after the last win, and Dad was sixty-two, and was he 60, 61, 60, However old he was in his sixties, and um, yeah, the the guy that we had to beat essentially um, another Australian came second, but we match raced the guy that came third, and we match raced him hard, which pushed him back down the the board. And he was uh, the training partner of Dylan and Stu in the 49er who just won a gold medal. So, wow. Um, What's your take home from sailing? What do you love most about it? Oh, that's such a hard question when I think I live, uh, I kind of live my life for this sport in a lot of ways. I I think that the community is the most beautiful thing. It can also be quite punishing because it's quite tight. But yeah. at, at for the most part, for me, the reason why I do this is for the community and because it can give so much to so many different people. I 
I I think back to April when we were doing uh, some sailing with autistic sailors and and that was with with the Making Waves Foundation in Sydney and that was just absolutely beautiful what they managed to uh, receive on that day in terms of joy. So uh, I I love the community for what it can provide. Um, I'm also really thankful for the fact that I was born into this family as much as I pay my family out. Mm. I'm incredibly grateful for the resilience, but also, um, you know, that world that I spoke about that I, I didn't really love, um, you know, by the time I was 15, I decided that I really did love it and, and it was something that I could make of myself. But as a guy that came from doing incredibly well at a world championship in a competitive class, he could have picked up any 18-year-old, 20-year-old guy and, you know, come top five of that world's no problems. But instead, uh, my dad, God love him, picked up his 11-year-old daughter and went, well, this is going to be a bloody struggle, but, you know, it might make her love it. So uh, I'm eternally grateful to him, but also to my mum for chasing us both around the world yeah, for yeah, many years to come. An incredible yeah. amount of support from family, doesn't it, to, to yeah. get to your level. And now my poor partner, Andrew, because, uh, you know, Dad and I still have boats together. Now he's following us around with my mum as well. Is he a sailor too? <laughs> no, no. I mean, Ooh. he's... He's been sailing with us. Um, very cool, actually. I think it was one of the last times I went sailing was February this year on my VX1 with Dad and Andrew offshore from yeah. Molly Mook. Uh, and it was a nor'easter and we were ripping down past the beach with the spinnaker up and he was just like, this is awesome. And I'm like, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it is. It is a certain feeling of freedom sailing absolutely you, you don't get to experience I mean you probably do if you jump out of a plane but yeah I've never done that but um but yeah that that the fact that it's purely nature that is pushing you along and, yeah. and you're totally exposed in the ocean I mean it's just it's a wonderful sensation yeah, the last time I raced was in was in February as well. I did the Etchell's Milson's Goblets, and Etchell is a small keelboat, and the Goblets is a big regatta out of the Royal Sydney Yacht Squadron at Kirribilli. But other than that, the only sailing that I have done this year has been literally offshore, just going for burns. And last year during the major lockdown, Dad and I would go offshore in our lasers. We're like, we're socially distancing. We're socially distancing. <laughs> like two kilometres offshore, socially distancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thankfully, um, thankfully the, the those in the, in the, you know, the government they did did allow sailing to be um something Recreation. That you do because it is a form of exercise and and 100%. it is you know it's a wonderful um thing to be able to do safely away from people as well so thankfully it, that was allowed which was oh fantastic. absolutely and i yeah. i have to say i can't even comprehend how much the australian government and re- related states are actually dealing with everything that's going on right now in australia but I am thankful that they're still letting us have however many minutes of exercise. When I was in Japan, I was only allowed outside for 15 minutes a day. I think um, having that 
respite to go and actually have a walk and a breather or a sail or a paddle or a fish or a, I don't know, play with your dog in the park, um, which mm. is my favourite thing to do personally at the moment, mm. although I haven't seen my dog in ages. Um, you know, it's it, it, that is something that's so important for sanity. And I think that's why, Andrew, maybe he's he's not a racing sailor, but he's a sailor at heart. And there's a lot of us that will associate with loving being in the outdoors and, and, you know, the ultimate goal for all of us at this point, and Hey, let's have a dream is I'm going to buy a yacht and go up to the Wit Sundays and yeah. sail around the reef. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's what we all want or to let, do. Or let's really. just buy, let's just buy a super yacht and live yeah, on it. Exactly. And, and not see anyone. A hundred percent. I've, I've literally had this chat. I think, I think the text message from Andrew this morning was, um, how much do you think an island is? And I said, a boat is cheaper. (laughs) (laughs) I know some people. (laughs) (laughs) A boat is cheaper and I can change the view. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, and that, and again, that's why sailing is such a beautiful sport. So if anybody's listening to this and they're um, thinking about getting involved with sailing, the cool thing is, Hopefully, COVID pending, you'll be able to go and just drop into a sailing club one day and just put your name up on the board and go for a twilight and see what it's all about. You don't have to pay a bunch of money for a course or, you know, what whatever it might be. You can, you, you'll find somebody just walking the docks at a yacht club if you say, hey, I'd, I'd really like to go for a sail. Can you take me for a sail? It's highly likely you'll get a ride there we're pretty, pretty, we're pretty, pretty friendly bunch. We're also incredibly competitive on the water, but we're a pretty friendly bunch at the end of the day. We like to finish things off with a, you know, a gin or a beer, depends on your poison. Um, so yeah, if, if you are thinking about it, I can say it's a beautiful community and it's a sport for life. So um, give it a go. Yeah, absolutely. I read an article um, in which Ian Murray was interviewed the other day. He has three daughters himself that he introduced yes, he to sailing. They love But they didn't follow his his love of sailing. Um, and he's, I think he's a little bit upset about that to on a personal level, but also he's trying to understand why girls do that and how we can fix that. Do you have any ideas for that process? I think some girls will naturally gravitate towards some things and some some other things. And I think I'm one of those people that likes to do the hard problems first and then the easy ones in an exam. So I'm I'm probably somebody who's sort of drawn to the challenge. Um, I think that Ian, at the end of the day, will say that he's proud of his girls no matter what. Oh, of course, absolutely. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And yeah. But whether you get them to sail or not, I mean, my dad got one out of three and I think he's lucky because um, <laughs> I'm a bit of a masochist. Um I think the thing for female sailors has been previously, you have to give up a lot to actually do well in it. Yep. Um, It's been a bit easier, and I'm not saying easy, it's been a bit easier for guys to be able to juggle a career and being a sailor. Um, I think that that has been a definite issue, and I know that in myself. I pretty much had to choose sailing or career. Right. and I'm very lucky. I I sort of spoiled myself with both, and I just made the choice um, 
I just finished my first degree, did an internship during my first degree, which was in advertising and PR at the UTS uh, with MNC Saatchi. They offered me a full-time job and, and I was 21. Went, ah, freelance? <laughs> <laughs> because I still wanted to try and give sailing a go. And, yeah. and I, so I think... Even if it's not the way that it is, it was the perception that it was. Um, the what had to happen was that the girls had to put everything in to go for those few spots um, that were available. And then, even when I was good and I was committed, I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't. There were always a bunch of limitations because there was nothing in between. It was either you know you're a you're a junior. You're a youth sailor. Are you going to the Olympics? No. Okay. Bye. Wow. <laughs> like okay. there was no other real pathway. I think for me that there's so much focus on the moment at the moment on getting women into those high performing spots. Yes. And I'm sort of like, what about the intermediate? Because yeah. there's a whole bunch of women that maybe want to sail at national championship and world championship level, but they don't have the time to go and do the sail GP. They don't want to do a Volvo. They might want to have kids as well, but still go and do a nationals and do better at their nationals. They might, you know, they, they don't, they don't want to go and do an America's cup campaign and, and work for ages in the shore crew before they even get a chance to go sailing on the boat. Um, So I think that, yes, it's amazing that we're getting more roles at the top, but I think it's like anything until you get roles in the middle, um, there's, there's no stepping stone and, and for girls you, and, and I should say women and ladies and not just girls They're at the moment, they're sailing for girls mm-hmm. and they're sailing for women on a twilight mm-hmm. boat, maybe, or maybe if they've managed to get through that, that pathway with some sort of wiggly, wiggly, higgledy, piggledy, jumping from boat to boat thing, had a family member that stuck up for them, had a friend that stuck up for them, managed to get onto a youth match racing team, which has carried them through to, you know, an Olympic program of some nth degree, then it's really, really hard to upskill. And until we can find um, the way to upskill everybody in terms of women will never be able, will never be on an equal playing field with men. And, you know, if I was putting together the best team ever to win a boat race, you know, who would you choose? I'd, there are a bunch of women I'd put on the team now, but maybe 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. So we're getting better. I just do think there needs to be big focus on pathways for youth other than Olympics so that they have somewhere else to go. And yeah. that's the case for men and women, I yeah. think. Yeah. Mm. Because especially for Ian Murray's kids, I'm sure they were, I mean, they were so talented. Eliza was a great 29er sailor. I remember her other half mm-hmm. <laughs> is a professional sailor. Uh, he's with the Sal GP team. Um, he He's a professional sailor and she's, you know, she's been there, done that. She's seen how hard it is even for the yeah. guys, um, you know, so doing it as a girl. It's yeah. hard yakka. Yeah. Know? Interesting. Now you yeah. say that you had to choose between career and sailing, but in actual <laughs> fact, <laughs> you created a career out of sailing now, haven't you? Yeah. So, I know I couldn't can you, help can it. Can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> sure can. I guess I bounced in between and out and in and out and in. Um I'm I'm a bit of a nerd though, so I always did my study uh all the way along as well. So I'm very lucky when I 
Um, I, I was involved in the Olympic program leading into 2012, but I got cut just beforehand because I was too short. Oh. Um, so I went and took a job at the Australian Sports Any Doping Authority and I worked with them for a number of years. And whilst I was doing that, I I had already gotten my graduate diploma in marketing by that time, but then I did my um, postgraduate in uh psychology as well whilst I was there and then you're such um, a, a you know underperformer Nick <laughs> I ended up working again in government but then I was sort of like oh I got a little bit of an itch so I I moved I got a transfer in government to work for um I looked after three federal government com- commissioners uh privacy information and freedom of information at the office of the information commissioner and a um, fascinating role uh, yeah, it was quite interesting, actually. So I worked there for three years. And um, while I was doing that, I was I started sailing the 470 um, quite a bit and really loved that. I was helming instead of crewing and still doing the taser as well, but started steering the taser. So Dad and I did a few nationals where we were reversed as well. Um, and so that was that was good fun. I had a variety of, of female crews, but at the end of the day, it was just too hard and too expensive. And I think I'd already exhausted my my energy to do the Olympics after the first, um, or I, I tried before that in the Yingling and, and gotten injured. And then I tried in the match racing. And then I, I, um, I tried in the four, the try in the 470 wasn't a real, a real crack, but I did sail it. I did do the circuit for, for a year or so, but, uh, my, my heart wasn't fully in it. So at the same time, I sort of started doing a, a radio show when 2012 was on, I was really disappointed with the TV coverage here. Um, mm-hmm. We had uh, Matt and Malcolm in the 470. Um, we had uh, Tommy Slingsby in the laser. We had uh, Nathan Outeridge and Ian Jensen in the 49er. We had uh, the match racing girls, and I'd been part of that squad. And so that the girls got silver, everyone else got a gold. Lisa Tesh and Dan Fitzgibbon in the Paralympics got a gold medal. Buggy got a bronze uh, in the in the two point five. So it was it was just an amazing Olympics for the Australians. And at the Office of the Information Commissioner, I had a poster. Of, <laughs> I'd like a laminated A four sheet of the heads of all of the sailors on it. And I would say to everybody, these guys, they're going to get more medals than the swimmers. You watch, you watch. <laughs> I feel like, okay, like to anybody who would listen and, yeah. yeah, not many listened. But then after they'd be like, you were right. And I was like, oh, funny, I know that, right? But during that games, I was up all night. And so I was tweeting what was happening and I was Skyping people in the village and getting information about what was happening and telling everybody on my Twitter. And my campaign blog, which was called Adventures of a Sailor Girl because... Uh, I hated training yeah. <laughs> as previously mentioned. So every time that we went training, my dad would take me on adventures and, um, and I was the only girl at my yacht club as well. So hence the nickname girly and sailor girl came pretty fast. I guess it was quite sexist, but sailor girl was always my name. So I didn't think it was sexist. I loved it. Um, no. I, took yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that, very quickly, my campaign blog, um, and you can you can look all the way back to blogs on my website that I wrote as a 19-year-old going, I think I'm going to win the Worlds next year. <laughs> like, it's pretty wow, funny. that's awesome. It's pink. Like the text is pink. There's smiley faces everywhere. It's now 
like a full-on professional news site. But is it Lucida Son's top font as well? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, like slanted and it looks like running, running. Oh, my God, it's terrific. Anyway, it's still there. I've left them all there because I can't get rid of them. And um, and so, you, you know, the blog goes back that far, but during 2012 I was like, right. And so instead of it being a personal blog, it just became this person's doing this, this person's doing this, follow this person here. You can watch this here. Here's a photo. Here's this, here's that. And all of a sudden I was like, wow. And so then I got asked to do a radio show on community radio in Sydney on sailing. And that was on Saturday mornings. So I started doing that and very quickly realized that most people were listening online via my Facebook page. And I was like, oh, okay. That's interesting. Wonder if I don't, I don't have to do this on a Saturday morning, which is really annoying. <laughs> Maybe I could do this at another time. <laughs> and um, and then so came the podcasts, and um, and pretty much decided, okay, I'm going to build a, a radio station in my lounge room, which yep. I did. And um, and then I was like, hang on a minute, I could probably have a crack at this full time. And the first. Oh, the first year was really hard. I I didn't leave Australia, but I did a podcast every week and wow. I interviewed sailors from all over the world. That was in 2014 by the time this came around. I still did a show every week, um, which was called Sailing Chicks before the Adventures of a Sailor Girl podcast went live in 14. But yeah, 14 I did. That's a I long did. time ago for a podcast. Yeah, I was I was I was new. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so that was the, the original podcast you can listen back, but it's cool because I'm interviewing people like Matt Belcher and Jason mm. Waterhouse and Tom Slingsby and Ian Murray and, you know, <laughs> all these guys that we still talk about and girls like Stacey Jackson and Katie Spithill and Nina Curtis who's on the SailGP team that I just commentated with. So, you know, it's um, it's really funny how I, I have now this, arc, you know, archive of interviews and things people over a really extended period of time, which is quite nice, actually, sort of like a timeline. So that's, that's sort of where it came from and it started there and then morphed into, into video and um, yeah. And then, and then getting involved with helping other events as well and to lift their profile. Cause ultimately the goal was I'm going to create a network, which will help rent a crowd <laughs> to, um, to as many regattas as I can help or as many organizations as I can help. And, yeah, and that, and that was a long time ago. I, I made the Facebook page in 2011, so it's 10 wow. years old now. And, you know, I started the blog Adventures of a Sailor Girl as an MSN space in 2004, which then became a WordPress site, and then I transferred it over to Nick Douglas. Uh, so it's um, it's all morphed. And, and then all of a sudden podcasts became cool again, and I was like, oh, all right, so whipped out all the old ones, you know. Like, <laughs> I love listen. it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's really funny how um, the media space has changed, but also not changed because people still like reading, yeah. um, they still like listening, they still like watching. It just depends on the medium as to what uh, and and the message and the the timeliness as to what. Uh, what medium's best. I, I think podcasts are really cool for things like this where you can go more in depth with people 
if people want live stuff though, it's um, it's all about the immediacy of it. Then they're straight wanting video, wanting pictures, wanting it now. And so, um, yeah, shout out to everybody who sometimes gets a bit frustrated with any broadcasters for not getting stuff to you as soon as they can. Trust me, they're getting it to you as soon as they can. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there is more we can do. And like, it was interesting, the Rolex Fastnet race just happened and I did a show on that last night recapping it. Yep. And I was. That's um, in the UK, right? Yeah, in the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. It used to be from Cows to Plymouth, but now it's from Cows to Sherbrooke. This is the first year yes. of the new track. Um, but yes, the first one I've missed. Um, so this is the, I've done past three out of four. So it was really interesting not being there, but the amount of audiovisual content that is now available when you're not on site yes. is massive. Well, one of my good friends, Jason, was uh, uh, photographing that race. Oh, wow. Um, he's done some beautiful photographs of it. Oh, it was nuts. It was so rough at the start. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was it was such a dramatic start, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the photographs of it are just quite, Jason Ludlow is his, his name. If oh, really? I probably, Do you know yeah, him? I've yeah. probably met him at some point. I um. I, I miss that part of the world. I usually do Cows Week each year. I haven't missed Cows Week since 2014. And, um, yeah, so it was weird not being there, but I was very proud that so many of the finishes were live streamed because I did the first live stream of a Fastnet finish ever. And, oh, look at um, you. yeah, well, it, oh, I just think it's amazing because now they do it. And I'm like, and yeah. I mean, you could be like, I stole my idea. And yes, they have. But <laughs> yes, I forced them to have a better standard of media coverage. Exactly right. So exactly. what I started you the movement, do... Nick. You started the movement. <laughs> so what I've started, maybe I'm not making any money, but <laughs> I'm making people cover regattas uh, with better efficiency and more visuals for us all. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's far better to leave a legacy of, of creating things like that than a legacy of money, right? So yeah, I hope so. Because otherwise have, I'm in big trouble. Difference <laughs> like that in the sailing world is just fantastic. So you've obviously just come back at doing the coverage of yeah. the Olympic sailing. How did that opportunity come around for you? Oh gosh, I was lucky. So um I got this email yep. in my inbox. Um hi, we're um representing the organization. Uh, we are really interested in you coming and being the English announcer. We heard you're available. I wrote back and wow. said, oh, I am available. Uh, yeah, I'm interested. And so then I'm going to the family, you know, so it really won't be that bad. And, you know, COVID's <laughs> fine and I'm going to be vaccinated and, you know, the dog will be fine. <laughs> backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. Erect scaffolding <laughs> in the hole that I dug myself. Um <laughs> I have a program on my phone called Duolingo. Have, have you heard of it? It's like yes, a, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. So I um I was learning Japanese, learning Japanese, learning Japanese, learning Japanese. And then when the Olympics got, I thought the Olympics were going to get cancelled, I swapped to French. And then the Olympics were back on again. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then they're like, no, 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 they're still going ahead. They're just postponed a year. Oh, back to Japanese. And then, <laughs> and then. My job. So which got- can you speak better now, Japanese or French? <laughs> Japanese, I think. Then the then the then the job got cancelled, and I was too scared. I was like, "Nah, not stopping to French. <laughs> the Olympics won't happen." Like, 
I need to leave it on Japanese. This is a problem. So, yeah, so I left it on Japanese and it wasn't until I didn't use it um, because I was still, I was like, I can't learn it, but I need to keep it on Japanese. And so then on my way home on the on the plane coming back to Australia, I finally swapped it over to French. I was like, yeah, I can solve it to French now. It's all good. But, <laughs> uh, like like anything I do has an influence on whether an Olympics game, Olympic Games goes ahead or not. But anyway. Um, oh, that's great. So, <laughs> all right. So concluding your amazing career, your um, incredible achievements on the world stage in sailing, um, what's what would you like to share with our listeners as potential boaters, current boaters, um, what do you think is the pathway that they can take if they have absolutely no experience in sailing? So, so let's let's take a, a young girl, um, and she wants to get into sailing. How's the best way she can do that? The best way you can do that is no matter where you are in the world, find your local yacht club and find out when they do their casual racing. So I'm not talking about winter series racing or Saturday serious stuff. Like find out they'll have a night most likely. And if it's not the one right near you, it might be a bit further. Um, Find out when they do their casual racing and put your name down on the board because there'll be a board or an online board or something and put your name down and say, I'd really like to go for a sail. When you get on a boat and because you will, because people are always looking for crew, especially when it's windy, be helpful. You might not know anything, but be helpful and ask questions because the more questions you ask, the more you will learn. And when you ask questions and you look like you really want to get involved and you're really keen, there'll be somebody on that boat who takes a liking to you and they'll really want to help you. So get under their wing and annoy the crap out of them. And learn as much as you can. And that's if you really want to get involved. You might go sailing for your first time and go, nah, it's not for me. Or, you know, this level is fine for me. I don't need to go any further. And that's totally fine too. Um, There is no rule. There are no rules uh, on how much or how little you have to engage with this sport. And that's why it, it is the best sport in the world for me, because I think it's why so many sailors also get involved with paddle boarding or skiing and, you know, other recreational sports like that, because you can get involved as much or as little as you like. You can be like my amazing partner who just wants to come cruising with me offshore and then go and have a beer. And at the snow, he doesn't even go out and ski. He literally sits inside working all day and he's active as hell. Like in summer, he'll be riding his mountain bike up and down that mountain like a nutcase, but he just doesn't want to ski. And (laughs) that's totally fine too. Because you can go on a holiday and you don't have to go sailing. You know, it's just, it's one of those sports that you can enjoy alone. You can enjoy as a couple. You can enjoy it with your mates. And um, if you really, really love it and you're a diehard like me and a bunch of other people I know, you can go as far as you like and uh, and give back to it as much as you like to. So um, it, it's a volunteer community-driven sport, which yep. has its pros and cons. Um, but if you show passion and initiative and you're genuinely interested, everybody will see that and you will find somebody who will become somebody that you will be friends with for life and will help you as much as they can. 
And th- that community you spoke of earlier that you've created, can you tell us a bit about how, how we get involved in that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And um, by no means, uh, don't be afraid of what I post there. My adventures of selling good channels could get quite serious. I, I actually, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of a, an app called Clubhouse. We have quite a bit of chat on uh, an app called Clubhouse, which is quite communal. There's a sailing club on Clubhouse as well, which I'm quite involved with. I, I run a weekly chat on Tuesday mornings. So it's all across the world, which is really wow. fun. And people engage as much or as little as they want to. So that's um, that's a pretty cool community there. So you can find me on Clubhouse um, as Sailor Girl or Nick Douglas. I'm on there. If you want to just come and have a chat with like-minded people or find out about clubs in your area, because there are people all over the world there. So I can recommend that to you. And it might not be my room. You might find another room in the sailing club that's talking about something that interests you. Um, also on Instagram at Sailor Girl HQ is my work page. At Nick Douglas is my personal page where you can see things like my uh, my beautiful Arc de Triomphe in the corner over here, which is a tower <laughs> made out of takeaway bags. Thank you, Hotel Quarantine. Um, or <laughs> um, you can follow us on uh, Facebook, Adventures of a Sailor Girl. Adventures of a Sailor Girl is also on iTunes. The podcast is there. There's a YouTube channel as well. Or you might just like to go to the website and read articles, which is sailorgirlhq.com. Pretty much Sailor Girl HQ on every single channel you can imagine, and we'll be there. <laughs> so you are one busy girl thank you <laughs> so much for your time nick it's been lovely talking to you today we really appreciate it oh no worries thanks for having me and i hope i've managed to cheer you up and also whomever else is listening to this i know that life's been tough um, but don't be afraid to act like it is tough and it's not a competition <laughs> Reach out and make everybody feel better and and don't be afraid to say uh, whether you are are struggling as well because I think that's super important at the moment too. That's mm-hmm. very good advice, Nick. We're closing with that. And I, it's been lovely. It's a, it's been our advantage that you're in lockdown because we've been able to have a lovely long chat with you. No, um, no, it's, it's been lovely to talk to you and learn a little bit more about what you're doing too. So um, I think it's it's wonderful what you're doing and, and hopefully uh, I, we've definitely got a new fan in me. So I'll be listening. Oh, thanks, Nick. Appreciate that. Ditto. Take care, sweetheart. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Boat Princess podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you'd like to know more about what I do and where I am, then you can follow me on Instagram at the Boat Princess. You can also sign up to my newsletter on my website, which is theboatprincess.com. And in doing so, you'll actually receive a code so that you can instantly enjoy complimentary from Ocean Magazine, their digital subscription until January 2022. That magazine is absolutely fantastic, beautifully put together, so much information about new boat models coming out, luxury lifestyle items and what's going around all over the world in the boating industry. So just go to my site at www.theboatprincess.com sign up for my newsletter and you'll receive that gift from myself and Ocean Magazine. Take care of yourselves, everyone, and hopefully we'll see you on the water soon.